Before today's episode, we acknowledge the Yagara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, Brisbane, the lands on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic and family violence that listeners may find confronting, challenging or triggering. Audience discretion is advised. Domestic violence is a national crisis. Targeting the most likely domestic violence murderers. Domestic violence protocols and culture will be put under the microscope. Queensland's silent killer. On average, one woman a week and one man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Here's a sobering statistic. There are more than 100,000 cases of domestic violence in Queensland every year. Welcome to Behind the Doors of Domestic Violence, presented by the Queensland Police Service. My name's Dean Cooper and I'll be the host of this podcast series. I'm a facilitator of a men's behavioural change program working to change the belief systems of men who perpetrate violence. I also work with Griffith University's Make Bystander program to empower a community of bystanders to be someone who does something about domestic and family violence in our community. This episode will be on supporting our culturally and linguistically diverse community and the power of bystanders. Welcome, Sean and Yasmin. Oh, thank you, Dean. Um, my name's Yasmin Khan and I'm the director and founder of the Bangle Foundation, which is an unfunded voluntary support service for South Asian women. We look after women uh, all across Australia and across the world, actually, because South Asian women are everywhere. We do this with a team of volunteers. Um, we have a little office on the south side of Brisbane and we have major complexities in our community um, with uh, domestic abuse. Mm. Come back to some of those complexities. Mm. And Sean, yourself. Thanks, Dean. Um, my name's Sean. I'm the director of the MATE program, which is a bystander program run out of Griffith University. What brings me to the table today? Just my passion around challenging status quo, um, around the fact that we need to do better by women and children who are experiencing domestic violence. Yasmin, you were mentioning before some complexities around the South Asian community and domestic and family violence. Can you please tell us a little about those complexities? Primarily, South Asian women are very um, conservative in nature. They're very traditional, very cultural, and they have issues that are unique to them that aren't unique to mainstream Australians. One of them is that a lot of them aren't on permanent visas. They're not permanent residents or Australian citizens. So that's certainly one issue that whether they report domestic abuse or not and how does that jeopardise their ability to stay in the country or jeopardise the ability of the perpetrator to stay in the country and then what does that do for their own welfare and sort of, you know, going forward, the provision of, you know, services for their kids and, and for themselves because he's the breadwinner. Um, there's that issue. Then there's the other issue of that they are isolated. They have no family here in Australia, a lot of them, you know, a huge majority of them. So they're talking to their family by remote control. They're constantly in touch with their family. Their family have a different understanding of what life is like in Australia. They picture it as life in uh, Pakistan or India or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, which is completely different to life here. So they uh, a lot of times discourage their daughters to tell because, well, single women don't live by themselves overseas, so we can't expect that they do it in Australia. So there's that issue as well, and it's just that understanding of what help is out there. And for women who have been conditioned all their lives to think that they go from their father's home to their husband's home and 
their husband will be their saviour, you know, because women are restricted in their ability to travel outside, uh, the ability to even go to work or study or whatever the circumstance is in that family. I'm not saying this is a huge generalisation. There are women that, of course, that do all of that. But for those, you know, that have been a little bit cloistered or, you know, need um, chaperones or whatever, no, you can't do anything until you get married. And when you get married, then your husband will take you wherever and then you're sort of like a free woman to go and explore the world because your husband's going to go with you. Now, if your husband's great, then life's great. But if your husband's not, or if you move into a a house because you go from your father's house to your husband's house and there's husband is not the only person in that house, it's intergenerational family. And if your in-laws aren't good, then life is going to be difficult for you. And when you're conditioned to believe that you go to your husband's home and that's where you stay, it's very hard then to come back. One in three migrant women have experienced domestic violence. I get phone calls. I had a phone call this morning, just this morning. You know, 15, 16, 18, 20 years these women have been together and they get to a stage where they've just had enough. They've been copying the abuse, they've been copying the verbal abuse, they've been copying the financial abuse and the emotional abuse and the physical abuse. But they bear it and they bear it and they bear it because nothing around them is telling them to get out. Not their family is telling them to get out, not their society is telling them to get out, not their culture, not their religion, not their traditions. Nothing's telling them to get out until they get to Australia and then they think, okay, well, maybe, maybe not, maybe. And then they see all the advertising and then they say, well, again, there's nothing because I'm going in to speak to a woman that doesn't understand my culture, that can't speak my language, that doesn't know what I'm going through, that doesn't realise that I've had an arranged marriage and what are the implications of that, doesn't realise that, yes, it might be arranged, but I'm still married to my cousin. So even my mother-in-law is nasty. She's also my auntie. So what does that mean? So there's all this complexity on complexity. And then, of course, if you take him out of the picture, Um, how do I feed myself how do I feed my kids you know and then if you take me out of my house and put me into a refuge where there's you know women who may or may not you know be sympathetic to the fact that I'm a covered woman or understand that I need prayer spaces or access to halal food and all those sorts of things and then where does that leave me that's if they get to a refuge if they don't get to a refuge and they're stuck in a motel and then they think well I've got four walls and yes I'm safe but I've left behind 15 people in my household and yes he was bad or she was bad or whoever was bad but I got on with all the others and and we had a good time and I could feed my kids. So maybe this is not the environment for me. So she packs her bags and goes back. But if she gets to a service provider that doesn't understand all of that, then she's just going to disengage. So then she isolates herself, she removes herself, she just grins and bears it, waits for her residency to come through or her citizenship to come through or her kids to get older and doesn't realise that all of that trauma that she's going through is now going to impact her kids and all those sorts of other things that are going to go through with it. So it becomes this never-ending cycle of understanding what that abuse is. Yes, I can bear it, but can my kids bear it? So they're all the things that we're trying to get through to these women that it's not just about you and that physical or emotional harm that's coming to you, but it's about what are you kids seeing and what are they experiencing but not only that what are you teaching your kids by bearing that are you teaching your kids that women should be submissive are you teaching your kids that that's how women should be you know treated so you know you've got to understand that And then there's the other stuff around the systemic abuse about, you know, who gets the family tax benefit. And for her to go to any event, you know, whether it's a a celebration or, you know, a wedding or a funeral or anything that she's got to do, she's got to go travel. 
because all her family's overseas. Now, if she can't get access to passports, she's stuffed. And the system, the way it is at the moment, is that you must have both parents' signature, who have parental responsibility, and that man, whether he's a good dad or a negligent dad, he has control over that mother's movements and the, and the movements of his children until that child turns 18. And I think that's a travesty, and I think that that's something our policymakers really need to look at. It's a systemic abuse that goes on that they use that passport as control. And, in fact, I've got women sitting at the moment back home in uh, South Asian countries whose husbands have taken them back to maybe attend a funeral or a, a wedding or a celebration or something and left them there and brought the passports back with him because he knows that she can't get another passport for a child. She can get a passport for herself. She can't bring the child back. And he also knows that he, she's not going to travel back without the child. So those women are stranded. I mean, then we've got Australian citizens sitting in third world countries that we can't get home because they can't get access to passports. When it comes to domestic violence, a lot of us struggle to imagine what the victims are really going through. You touched on the role of mother-in-law in that situation as well. In the South Asian community, what role does the mother-in-law play within the home and, and being around this relationship? Look, mother-in-law is quite vital, primarily because the new bride will go and live with her nine times out of ten. She may eventually leave that, but her initial contact will be A, with the mother-in-law initially because the mother-in-law is the one that's arranging the marriage. And I did my honest thesis on this and I spoke to a number of women who had been victimised by their mother-in-law. And this is one of those silent, abusive relationships that we don't talk about. Primarily within Australia, we look at intimate partner violence and 80% of domestic abuse is intimate partner violence. Well, a lot of our women don't go through necessarily intimate partner violence. They go through extended family violence and primarily it's the mother-in-law. But we spoke to a number of women who had experienced that. And yes, the girl herself had been chosen by the mother-in-law and had gone through that whole ritual. A lot of times she had never met the husband. Husband wasn't in the country. Husband was overseas studying. Husband was overseas working. So it was a mother-in-law that went through all of that, vetted everything, did everything. Now, mother-in-law, of course, is only going to go and find what's best for her son. So she wants somebody who's from a, you know, good family, uh, middle to upper class, well-educated. You know, I want my daughter-in-law to be a doctor or whatever, the situation, engineer or whatever it happens to be, and goes and looks for those things. And they're actually, you know, tick boxes and, and she ticks them off. But when she gets into the house, life changes. You don't really need to go to work. Your husband will pay you to stay at home. The girl says, I never saw a cent. She was a doctor at a good hospital and earning good money and quite independent, financially independent, socially independent, um, but that all stopped when she got home. So the mother-in-law can make or break the relationship. There's no doubt about that. Sean, I understand you've had a career in, in government and you've worked for quite a long time in the, in the corrective services space and now landed within the uh, MATE bystander program. Can you tell us a little bit about why bystanders? Yasmin is the epitome of an effective bystander, of someone that went, this isn't okay, we need to do something about this and set up a foundation that's unfunded, can you believe that's all unfunded, to look out for these women who are victims of of abuse at the hands of family. That's my passion. I worked in lots of different roles in the prisons and also with people on parole. And I think, Dean, I was getting increasingly frustrated with the fact that we were having meeting after meeting about all the new prisons we were building. We had prisoners sleeping on cell floors in every prison in Queensland. You can't just keep building prisons and putting people in them because at that point, the damage has been done, lives have been destroyed, things will never be the same again. I was so disheartened by seeing that and it was on repeat. So what I found really early on in my career in corrective services is that about 90% of the people 
that I was coming in contact with had been impacted by domestic family violence. So I this work found me. And I think once you see it, you can't unsee it, you can't unknow it. And you can either turn a blind eye to it or you can build a passion base around this can't be right. I suppose for me it was twofold. Working in the prison system, I also then took a secondment to a domestic violence service because, like I said, 90% of the people I was working with were impacted by it and I wanted to better understand the victim perspective. So I went and worked at an organisation called the Domestic Violence Prevention Centre. I very quickly learnt there from women, just as Yasmin says, from women about how the system was failing them. And I was the system. The system was me. That was me. So even though I was sitting there and making all these big decisions, no one had ever stopped me and highlighted my own privilege to me. Actually, that was my job to do it, but I never did that. Sitting in your own privilege is quite comfortable. And so I was making these big decisions around what victims should do, what perpetrators should do, what community safety meant, what safety meant to these individual people. They're the expert in what's happening to them and I'm not that expert. And so when I actually went to the domestic violence service and started hearing from victims about how the system was letting them down or the system was making matters worse, I was distressed but also my passion was born around, okay, so if we're building prisons, just more and more prisons and filling them, what's happening in the refuge space. My philosophy, Dean's always been, you need to be part of the solution. You can't just be part of the problem or whinging about the problem. Because when you have over one woman a week being murdered at the hands of a partner or former partner, there is nothing more critical than that. Violent, abusive, and unhinged. The program that I run now at, at Griffith is all about empowering bystanders, empowering all of us to be part of the solution. And I'm not just talking about the pointy ending where we are seeing domestic violence or hearing it or sensing it. I'm not just talking about doing something there. I'm talking about doing something all the way back here from rigid gender stereotypes, from the objectification of women, from understanding the intersections of domestic and family violence from making sure that you are not contributing to any of those things, I refer to them as beneath the iceberg, that continue to perpetuate or uphold domestic violence at the tip of the iceberg. Those things can't happen in isolation. So someone doesn't wake up one day and decide to go out and, and abuse their partner. As a society, we've encouraged it sounds like a horrible word, but actually we have. And if you overlay that with racism that I think is ever-present in our community and to some extent I think worsening, uh, not getting any better anytime soon, you overlay that with that intersection, you also add some other intersectional layers, we're really not doing enough to stem the flow of domestic violence. Uh, so my passion now is about making sure that every community we go into, we meet people where they're at. I want to understand why people sit staunchly in their beliefs around rigid gender stereotypes and say, well, little boys should do this and little girls should do that. I'm really keen on understanding why people feel really attached to some of those things when we know that that's one of the main drivers of violence against women is, you know, little boys and thinking that they have to be strong and tough and resilient and not show emotion and little girls thinking they have to be quiet and demure and do as they're told and be pretty and all of those things. If we're upholding that, nothing's going to change. Prevention feels really beautiful and hopeful. 
with those complicities and I guess in that education piece and empowering people, Yasmin, in the South Asian community, what do community members need to know about domestic and family violence in the South Asian community? You know, that's the difficulty. And when Ishan said about, you know, traditions and how we need to break those traditions, that's all right to do. But for women who are isolated and who have their own family, they rely on those traditions. That's all they know. They've come to a foreign country and their tradition is what maintains their connection to their to their home country. So those traditions are very hard to change and to break. It's a very traditional, very, very culturally sensitive community. People who are fifth, sixth, seventh generation Australians are still doing arranged marriages. You know, we had Eid, the end of Ramadan on the weekend, and I've got henna all over me. So so we still follow our traditions, and yet I'm born and bred in this country, fifth generation. We still have that connection to our culture and to our tradition and to our religion, whatever that be, whether that's Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, Christian, doesn't matter. The ties that bind are very strong, and the family aspect of that is very strong. And that's one of the issues I have around some of the coercive control stuff is this idea that, you know, controlling behaviour well, hey, we all grew up in pretty, you know, pretty conservative, very strict households. I'm worried that coercive control legislation can be weaponised against somebody who is brought up in a conservative household and said, well, hang on a minute, your dad can't tell you what you can wear. Adults are still living at home with their parents. The third person walks in and says, well, you know, you don't need a chaperone to go outside. You, you can leave and you can come and go whenever you want. No, 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 hang on, my dad's got rules, my mum's got rules, whatever. That can be weaponised. And so oh, I think this girl's being controlled, you know. So a whole heap of issues around that that they, I don't think, have quite worked out properly. You know, the complexities for South Asian women leaving these relationships or surviving and doing the best they can through these relationships, doing it in isolation must be incredibly difficult. How better can the South Asian community and police work together? One of the issues is women reaching out to police because they come from countries where police can be bought. And that's the difficulty. So they come from a place where policemen are quite untrustworthy or they're quite corrupt or whatever. So for them to reach out to police here, it's a new phenomenon for them. But I always say to girls, ring the police, ring triple O, ring me second. You know, ring triple O first, ring me second. The police are your friend. And I will always say that. And I've always said that. So that's certainly not a problem, the police. I think the issue is around service provision. And it's an argument that I've been having for a while. We encourage migration from South Asia primarily. The South Asian community in Australia is the largest non-white community we have. But we have no ethno-specific service provision. And it's like called, you know, let's talk about called. Called is very diverse, you know, it's culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I mean, it's in the wording. So here we are expecting that there's one organisation out there that looks after multicultural people and we expect them to service um, women from Brazil, that the same from women from Bosnia, the same that women from Sri Lanka. I mean, they've got completely different cultural expectations and completely different cultural backgrounds and you're never going to be able to do that. And when the South Asian community is the largest, I think it's only appropriate that we offer a service provision that is exclusive to South Asian communities. And the problem is that organisations like us, organisations like within the Chinese community and with other various Vietnamese community have got it, the communities look after their own. And it's an easy cop-out for governments. Well, you know, why would I fund you, Yasmin? You're doing it for free. 
And the thing is that if Yasmin wasn't here, who else is going to then take it on? Who's going to do this job for free? And that's my issue. It's not about me and me getting paid. It's about the longevity of this. How do we sustain this organisation? Because I'm not here tomorrow. Who then does it? And where does that go? And where do these women go? I mean, I'm getting five, 600 phone calls. I know you're coming up with ridiculous figures over there for DV Connect. But for an unfunded organisation, we get five, 600 clients a year. Yeah. I mean, that's 10, 12 women a week. So there's a lot of people, and if we as an Australian society are saying come to Australia and enrich our country and, and uh, you know, be our engineers and doctors and nurses and whatever, then we've got to actually provide something for them when they get here that we can't just say, oh, well, you're just called. You know, you're just uh, multicultural and, and we're just going to play dress-ups and eat a curry and think that, you know, we're aligned with the community. No, I'm sorry, you're not. Until you provide services that are ethno-specific that can look after those people, understand what those people are going through, understand their values and their traditions and speak their language and understand their culture, you're not providing anything for them. And that's why women don't engage. That's why women don't ring the police because they think, well, is it safe to do so? I don't know. What are some, I guess, misunderstandings or, or myths and stereotypes around the South Asian community in the domestic and family violence sector? Uh, women should be submissive. Uh, women should worship their husbands. And that's not only just for outside, that's from inside as well. I mean, you know, women have been told that every day. Yes, your husband said that, that and that's the way it goes. Sometimes you could say that, you know, it's a myth or whatever. And to a certain extent, for some things it is a myth, but a lot of times that's just the lived experience. Yeah, women are submissive. That's what they are. But that doesn't mean to say that they have a right to be abused. If people are just seeing that, then they say, oh, yeah, but that's just your culture. You know, you're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to be like that. You're not allowed to do that. We've got female doctors and dentists and, and engineers and, you know, lawyers and all those sorts of things that do all those things and that are leaders of their country. Um, so for people to suggest that um, women are subjugated, yes, they are as are women in Australia. And there are conservative Christian women that are, you know, have very typical rigid gender roles and whatever. It's not limited to South Asian cultures. It's across the world. Those who work in DV prevention say the biggest challenge right now is awareness and the responsibility lies with everyone in communities, religious groups, workplaces and in the media making sure women know what domestic violence looks like and where to find help. I talk a lot about TikTok, yeah. social media, yeah. and I have two sons uh, and they're both they're 12 and 13. The anti-feminist messaging that comes through is strong. Absolutely. And inside my home, we have a number of conversations where one of my children in particular is very tuned into it because I live in the home too. Mm. <laughs> Poor thing sometimes, seriously. <laughs> and he'll come and say, Mum, check this out. And it amazes me that if those conversations are not happening inside the home, how quickly that will get out of control. Absolutely. It's really scary that the conversations, the things that come through, and it's done in a dance form or a, mm. a, some other form that relates. Those children can relate to it. There's a million of those messages coming through thick and fast. It's a confusing time. For teenage boys it's a really confusing time they're trying on all these new different ideals of what it means to be a young boy or a young man and yet they're getting these messages from here messages from mum another message from school it's all over the shop so I'm really concerned about 
young boys as I am with young girls as well, but in particular the targeting, the direct targeting of them to bring them onto that narrative Mm. that they're being subjected to every day. And that's a lot of what we do at Mate is we try and encourage people to gain a broader perspective of the world around them, what they're watching, the algorithms that are coming to them aren't coming to their children. They're totally different algorithms. And so being tuned into what they're hearing and seeing and yeah. Can I say, hand on heart, over the last probably five years, the change in approach to QPS has been very visible to not only myself but the hundreds of victims that I work with where police will say, you're able to phone me and speak to me as a hypothesis. So if I was to refer this woman to you, she's a 30-year-old woman, she's living with this, what would happen? And they won't ask me what's her name, what's her address. So it feels safe as a provider or a bystander to phone and ask those questions now. And police are also more forthcoming around, if you tell me this, I'm going to have to do this. Mm. But if you leave it here, it's okay. The other thing that I think they're more open to than they ever have been is saying, for some people, it might not be safe to call police. And so what else can we do? And I think that's why we've done quite a bit of work recently with police because we run a bystander program because what we want to do is empower bystanders to not put themselves in harm's way but to recognise that this is a whole-of-community approach. It's like that John Mayer song waiting for the world to change, right? Who's going to change it? We have to. And so where we can influence the community around us or the world around us, I want to do that. Kind of like the neighbourhood watch Mm. kind of thing. I want us to build communities where people feel if something was to happen and someone was to see something, say on a train or a bus or out in public, that they know there'd be bystanders in that crowd that would look out for them. Similarly, if there was conversations that were sexist or racist or homophobic or transphobic in the school community, there would be bystanders in that school community that were going to say or do something. I want us to build a community of equality and safety amongst ourselves. A neighbour had heard the commotion when she decided to act, secretly giving her the number for DV Connect. I think it's a huge cultural shift but in the Australian society because all our lives we've been told nosy neighbours. Yes! Draw the curtains, whatever's happening over there is their business and the idea of dobbing in your mates. Yep. You don't do that. You don't do that. You're Australian, you don't dob in. We've still not got the, you know, take the keys off your mate, don't let him drive type of thing. We're still doing that after 40 years for God's sake. Absolutely. Um, How do we we do this sort of thing? Oh yeah, but that's, you know, that's just them and that's their own personal thing. I wouldn't like somebody nosing in on my personal thing. So it's about that cultural shift. What social contracts have we signed as bystanders and as a community that were filed in the, it's too uncomfortable it's not my business, this is not the place to do this, it's a trap. And I think that's where the Mate Bystander Program comes in quite well as to reviewing those contracts, you know, do these serve us, do these not having these conversations, what does that actually mean? And I think it's really great to be able to bring the culturally and linguistically diverse community and the bystander approach together to better understand each other and how we can support people in the community as a whole, not as multicultural and, and Australian, but as a whole to have conversations about domestic and family violence definitely and look I think from my perspective Yasmin what you've done is the epitome of a good bystander of what we want more of is going well actually if I don't step into this space who's going to none of us get it right every day I'm the first one to you know make mistakes get it wrong what have you 
we always talk about not calling people out. Yeah, I remember calling them in. Mm. So, you know, Dean, I've noticed that you're just not yourself lately. Is everything okay for you? And that might be because I've heard an argument on the weekend. I don't always have to go and directly confront that. I can ask Dean the following week. I'm just noticing that, you know, is everything okay for you? Now, Dean might not be in a position where I'm the person he's going to disclose mm. to, and that's okay, but I want Dean to know that I have seen him, that I'm concerned about him and that I've got a position as a bystander that doesn't have any judgment and it doesn't have an expiry date. Mate, just let me know I'm here for you. If you ever need me, I'm here. Giving them the space to disclose what they're comfortable with with you. So even if you overheard something or you saw something and Dean says, I'm totally okay, Yasmin, there's nothing to do with you. Most times as a bystander, you're not going to get messages back necessarily that say you've just saved my life or you've just Mm. saved the day. You'll probably get messages that you're being nosy, that you need to step back, that this isn't your place. And as children, we were told to sit down, be quiet, don't get involved. So we've constantly been given messages that we're not leaders. But if we talk to people about personal leadership and we talk to people about the fact that if you drove past a car accident on your way home even though you don't know what to do you're going to get out and help you're going to figure it out you're going to do something flag down a somewhat you're going to do something but you're not going to keep driving so this is a learnt behavior we've learned about around relationships and families and family violence and conflict and we can unlearn that I don't believe in direct confrontation Mm -hmm. don't we say Dean a shamed brain doesn't learn You don't shame someone into changing their behaviour, but you use a line of inquiry, you know, I'm concerned about you. How can I best support you? What do you need from me? All the things that the Bengal Foundation represent. That's us as an organisation. It's telling the community to do that Mm. because the community doesn't. And again, when you've got cultural understandings of, well, that's none of your business, you keep out of it, you don't interact. So again, you're coming from a different cultural background that you don't do those sorts of things. It's a completely new behaviour that they have to learn. So the different complexities that South Asian community face in terms of domestic and family violence, where can they turn? What are the best resources and culturally appropriate support that people can turn to? Well, again, people go back to their community. I mean, you've only got to look at Facebook pages to see that I've got this issue and I'm thinking, why are you writing here? Why aren't you making a phone call? Why aren't you going to see the doctor? Why aren't you ringing the police? Why? But they don't, they don't because they don't know... Again, what the repercussions of that is going to be. So they ring and they get this sort of community thing. And then invariably somebody will write, Yasmin, please help this woman. I do get those phone calls. Oh, you didn't save a life, but you've helped me in my mind sort things out. And that's the thing. It's people getting that perspective around what's going to happen. Sometimes it's just having that talking to, if nothing else, that they get that help. You know, there are community organisations out there that do that. Um, Again, most of them are unfunded. The government-funded ones that are out there are multicultural, don't provide the ethno-specific services that these women require. But yeah, look, I always say to them, ring DV Connect, ring the police, ring Women's Legal Service, ring whatever you need to do, ring me second, or ring me after you've done the main stuff and then I can support you through the rest. And of course, that's where we're a little bit different. We're a support service. We're not a, you need to go here, here. We actually take them. I actually go to court with them. I actually go to the police and do their affidavits and their, you know, statements. We sit in court with them. We take them to the bank to open a bank account. We go to Central with them to get their paperwork done. We write to immigration on their behalf to do all that. So we are a full support service. We don't just say, well, here's a list of all the things you need to do or maybe not, where they don't have language, where they don't have transport, where they don't have capabilities, all those sorts of things. So we support them all through all of that. And that's sort of a different 
sort of model, I suppose, than other organisations offer. That's what you have to do because they need handholding, a lot of them, and for, you know, a good reason because they're terrified otherwise. And and like I said, if you're not there to support them, then they're just going to disengage. And I would rather be there to spend that extra time with them to support them through that service rather than them disengage and then, you know, a whole heap of other problems will manifest itself down the track. And Sean, as a final note, I guess to bystanders, which is essentially the community that are listening to this podcast, what key messages would you like to send to all the bystanders out there? If you are not part of the solution, if you are not doing something tangibly in this space, then that tells me that you're okay with status quo. And that's unacceptable for me. If you're listening to this podcast today, I want you to find a way, find some way of being part of the solution because I'm not asking for more than what people can actually contribute, but I'm asking for people to be mindful that their neighbours, their colleague, a mother at their school, whoever it might be that might be experiencing this may be completely alone in their experience and just to know that there is someone there that cares, that isn't judgmental, that doesn't have an expiration date, that is going to support them and walk alongside them on their journey, whatever that might look like, is sometimes the most powerful thing for that woman, whether it is that she wants to leave the relationship or is staying in the relationship for whatever the reason. Your job is not to play judge and jury. Your job is not to plan for her, tell her what she should and shouldn't do. It is simply to be help and support that person that walks alongside them like I said we released an app a couple of years ago now called the be there app and it's a free bystander app and you can download it onto your phone basically the stuff that Yasmin and I talked to today is what the app helps you to do it helps you identify what it is that you might be seeing or hearing and then it actually has a journal function in there so you can journal and it can give you some really good information resources supports but most importantly it's lockable so it's a safe place for you as a bystander to go and get some support that you need. Because being in a bystander, like you said, Yasmin, isn't easy. You're not always going to get the right messages around it. You might be getting pushback from everyone, but you have to know that it's the right thing to do and that that's how we change the world. Yeah, I really like that notion of, um, you know, if you're not part of the solution or actively being part of the solution, then you're saying the status quo is okay. None of us are okay with status quo. That was really um, similar to my journey into this space where you probably will hear the not all men part of this conversation as well. And whilst I looked around and I said, well, that's correct. Not all men are using violence. I wasn't using violence in my relationship and my friends that I looked around weren't using violence in their relationship. But not a single person in my social circle was doing anything about it. They weren't having the conversation. And it was that flipping of the mindset to becoming an active bystander from, you can't just be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. So when you see racist behavior, you need to be vocal about it and speak out and have the conversation. And it's, it comes, it's the exact same with domestic and family violence. If you're seeing those rigid gender stereotypes, those inappropriate language and jokes that condoning a violent language or victim blaming statements, it's our responsibility as community members to be someone that does something about that and to have those conversations. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for being the perfect bystander, for being a bystander to seeing a gap in service 
and understanding and not only filling that gap but overfilling the gap and going above and beyond what I thought was humanly capable to support women who are leaving relationships in such complex situations. And I just thank you for your work and, and thank you for constantly um, being the, the perfect bystander. I'd like to be a funded bystander. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we Please. would love for you to be we a We would love you to be a funded by How you've done what you've done and what you've achieved <laughs> is remarkable. And only if any funding bodies are listening, what work could be done with some funding and support is significant as well and just how far-reaching that will go. Look, it's only about sustainability. Like I said, I'd still not get paid. I'm not there to get paid myself. I don't need to be paid to do the work. I've been doing it for 10 years now without it. But it's about the sustainability, about bringing more people on to do the things that we need to do to have the proper support systems around us, the governance, all those sorts of things. Yeah, the gap in the service delivery, should you not be here tomorrow, is significant. So you're absolutely right about the sustainability. And Sean, thank you so much. Thank you for being a mover and shaker in this space and constantly advocating for bystanders to know better and do better and uh, for all your work with Telstra and creating the Be There app as a support for people to access and I would really encourage everybody listening to download that today and really utilise the features there to show up for the ones that you love and be there. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic and family violence, please start the conversation, reach out for support or report to police. Head to our show notes for contact details and service support.